listening to GP Life Hacks with Dr. David Land. Side needs for our OSCE station, it's two random fasting BGLs or one if they're symptomatic. Yes. Uh, or an HbA1c elevation. Correct. Two HbA1c. Yes, or one if they're asymptomatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So say if they're asymptomatic and you get a funny fasting blood glucose or <coughs> random blood glucose or HbA1c, if you literally tr- repeat it again in 24 hours, mm-hmm. that's fine because you're not trying to see whether the HbA1c has moved over the physiological course of three months. You're just trying to make sure the lab haven't yeah. you know, yeah, stuffed it up bad. or the sample has been stuffed up in transit or whatever. Cool, thank you. Before you diagnose them with a lifelong chronic uncurable Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Medication wise, what's the medications rough strokes wise for diabetes? Metformin. Start off with metformin. If that doesn't get you to target once you're at the maximum dose tolerable for metformin after a three month period. So if they're on max dose tolerable of metformin and three months later, the HbA1c is not what you wanted to do. You need to start another medication on top of that. If you need to do that on top of metformin, what are your choices? Yes, sulfonylurea, SLG2 inhibitor, or TPP4. Yep. Literally any of those three is the right answer, but in practice point of view, you will generally go one of the newer agents, so the SGLT2, which is anything ending in uh, glyphosin, or DPP4, which is anything ending in glyptin. The reason is because it's way more tolerable side effect wise than the older sulfonylureas. Both will, all of the above will work probably equally as well in terms of getting your sugars down. But the newer ones, they don't have the weight gain and the hypo risk that the sulfonylureas does. So start off with those. And same thing, if you've maxed out the doses of those and three months later, your HbA1c isn't to target, you add the other one. So if you have metformin and a glyptin and that's not weak three months later, add on the glyphosin as well. If you are still not winning with the orals, then you can use exenatide on top of that. Okay, exenatide being a glucagon-like, exogenous glucagon-like peptide. I'll let you guys look up. The weekly injection. Yeah, the weekly injection. It's a subcut weekly injection. It's kind of a baby step to insulin because you only need to do it once a week because it's got a long-lasting formulation. Yeah. If that doesn't work, so the tablets plus your exenatide, and three months later your HbA1c is still not on point then you can look at dropping everything other than the metformin and adding the insulin. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because metformin won't give you hypos, but the sulfonylurea will. So drop that um, and add on insulin. Yeah. Okay? And the insulin, you basically just keep titrating up until you get the right sugar. Yeah. So with the exanatine, you keep all the other meds? Except for if they're on a glyptin. Because mechanism-wise, that also the, the, the glucagon works in the DPP4 pathway. So there's no point giving, you're just doubling up yourself for no reason. So that's diabetes in a nutshell. The non-pharmacological stuff is literally all that same recipe that we just talked about. Let's move on to now. Uh, we talked about asthma as well. Don't get into your minds about it in terms of an OSCE because it's a false situation. It's a simulation. You would never talk to, you know, counsel asthma in eight minutes flat. So they will make it horribly, horribly more than real life obvious that they need a preventer if they need a preventer. Okay, the story will be like, literally I'm gasping for breath every night despite maxing out my Ventolin. And when I use my Ventolin, I'm getting shakes and stuff like that. It will be really obvious you need to start them on a preventer. Okay, if you are gonna start them on a preventer, what are your options? 
Flixitide. Yes, Flixitide, which is what kind of medication? That's exactly right. So inhaled corticosteroid is a first-line preventer. What's the other one that somebody said? Montelukast. Singulair, yes. Montelukast tablets or Singulair is the trade name. They're under 14. If they're, under, if they're between 4 and 14. Yeah. Okay. Kids tend to like the Singulair better because it's a tasty raspberry-flavored lolly, um, but either is acceptable. Does it work over 14-year-olds? It's a maybe. Some people it does, some people it doesn't. But at that point, Medicare doesn't want to pay for it anymore because it's not a 100% hit rate. Yeah. If their first line doesn't work, what are your options? Increase the ICS dose. Yeah. Yep. So let's say you max out on your first line. Um, ICS Yeah, that's right. So the in-between step, if they're in between 4 and 14, is if you started on Flixtide, maxed out the dose, and they're still not controlled, you can put them simultaneously on the Singulair tablets and see what happens. Vice versa is also appropriate. So if they're on the Singulair, you've maxed out the dose, still not winning, give a go with Flixtide as well. Okay. And then correct, if that's not working, then you move to your ICS larva. Which are the common examples? Serotide is one. Simbicort. Simbicort. Yes, Elliptor is another one. It's the one that's a egg shape. Yeah, Brio Elliptor, when you peel the cap back and just suck in. Yep, that's one. Fluidiform is the other common one. The fluidiform is just flixotide, fluticasone, plus an, a larva in it as well. And you see how you go. The rookie error slash what you should not do for OSCEs if they need a preventer is to say straight off the bat, I'm going to start them on serotide. So everybody is on that as a first line anyway, but that's actually not quite correct and certainly not correct for exam purposes. You should do an ICS alone to start off with and see what happens over the course of the next month. Let's talk about COPD then. In terms of if they need a preventer for their COPD, which by and large, most COPD people on the time of diagnosis of COPD tend to need some form of preventer. As opposed to asthma, where a lot of people get diagnosed with asthma and it's actually not that bad. It's seasonal, it's exertional, you don't need a preventer. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, COPD, what's the first line drug class for preventers as opposed to asthma? Alama. Or... A lab or alone. So if you look at the fine print on that that, that COPDX thing, it actually says yeah. either or. But most people will go with a llama what to start off with. What's the name of a single llama? Like, so long-acting muscarinic, one of the most common ones. In fact, the most common one is teotropium. Okay. Also known as spiriva. Every old man ever that smokes is on spiriva, right? Because that's it. Yeah. Teotropium is the longer one, but archetropium is short. Correct. Yeah. That's why we use that. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. That's right. Yeah. So hypertrophium is also known as atrovent. So you yeah, see yeah, Angela say like, yeah. oh yeah, they're coming, they were giving them ventilin, they're yeah. giving them atrovent. Yeah. So first, just to recap, first line preventer for COPD is a LAMA, mm -hmm. long acting muscarinic, as opposed to first line for asthma is an ICS. Okay. Your common examples for LAMA is most common probably be titropium slash Pariva, same thing. Okay. If the llama alone doesn't work a month later and they're still uncontrolled. What's your next line preventer for COPD? Adding a lava? Yes. So it's a llama lava, which is completely different to asthma where you've got ICS and ICS lava. COPD, you've gone llama and then llama lava. Okay. So the same company that makes Bereva have cashed in and made... Spialto. And that's tyotropium. Yes. 
And I can't even remember Espermeterol, I feel like. It's a lava. I can't think of what the lava is in it. Spialto is my next go-to if the Spiriva isn't working. So there's a lot more competitors coming out into the market. There's one called Anora, which is made by the same people as Brio Elipta. And it's the same delivery device. Don't ask me which ones they are. It's Eumeclidium as a llama and some yeah. other sh**. I don't know. If the llama lava doesn't work a month later, what's your next go-to? ICS. Yes. Lama Lava ICS. So triple inhaled therapy is indicated in COPD guys that can't get dealt with preventer wise with dual agent. So why wouldn't we have put the ICS sooner in the algorithm for COPD? Because if you notice in asthma, that was like the first thing we did. What's the danger potentially of ICS with COPD? Um, vulnerability to infection. Yes, which they are anyway. Yeah. Their immunity by definition for COPD is less than the average Joe because they've been smoking, so they've got fucked cilia. Whereas asthma, the cilia are working pretty well just fine. So ICS is fair game right from the get-go. But with COPD, you kind of want to leave that as a last resort because you know they've already got impaired immunity, so the last thing you want to do is impair it even more with the chronic steroid use in that area. Yeah. But, you know, hey, they'd rather breathe at that point. Then have perfect flora. So perfect flora. Yeah. There's only one on the market thus far, but watch this space again. It's good money. Trilogy. What? Yes, Trilogy. So Trilogy is the only product on the market at present in Australia that has in the one puff a bit of ICS, a bit of lava, a bit of lava, a bit of everything. Brought up an interesting point. He said, "Do they still keep taking PRN Ventolin all throughout, no matter how bad the illness is?" And the short answer is yes. All COPD and all asthma, regardless of severity, should be counseled on, this is how you use your Ventolin when you acutely need to do so PRN. That part doesn't change no matter what their regime is. So other than Trilogy, if that's the only one where you have one puff that gives all three, what are your other options to deliver three agents? Three puffers? Yes, two or three puffers. So <laughs> as an example, it would be very reasonable if they're on the Spialto and that's not working to add like Flixotide as the ICS. So they take their Flixotide and they take their Spialto. And you can see from that, you can make pretty well any other combination you want out of those yeah. to whatever is easiest for the patient. So again, when you look onto the non-medication side, when you're talking about endoscopy, you go through the SNAP, vaccinations, uh, allied health, and then what's specific to COPD but not other chronic conditions is the action planning stuff. Mm -hmm. For today's intents and purposes, let's just say the action plan is basically just telling them when to use PRED or not. When are you that bad that you need to use PRED? Okay? So for today's intents and purposes, without going into too much detail, let's just leave it at in asthma, in acute exacerbation of asthma. So if you get a flare-up of your asthma and you're having to use your Ventolin more than every three hours and you're still feeling puffy, you need PRED, okay? Does everybody get that? If you're having to use your Ventolin with a spacer with perfect technique more than every three hours and you're still getting puffed, you need PRED for three to five days at least. So that's basically one of the key parts of the action plan is literally writing that down for them, okay? COPD, it's the exact same rule with oral corticosteroids. You tell the COPD patient if you're crook and you can't breathe even though you're using your Ventolin every three hours with perfect technique and spacer, you need PRED. 
If you want to learn the dose, it's 25 milligrams if they're not too bad and 50 milligrams if they're pretty bad. Most times I give 50 because like, whatever, I just rather get on top of it. Because if you can't breathe and you're taking three hours, like I don't, you know, why leave it the chance? So I give most people 50. If you want to roll the dose for kids, it's one milligram per kilogram. And that would be a three day no, no taper, but they should go and see their GP for review if they're that unwell. Correct, correct, correct. That's absolutely right. Plus, if they're then getting infective signs, they can take the doxy we've given them or a moxy. Yes, in terms of tapering for PRED, you can use PRED every day for a whole seven days without having to taper, the research now shows. So you'll see a lot of GPs still go like, oh, you've had PRED for two days, now we need to wean you down. <laughs> and it gets really annoying. Doesn't matter, Doesn't. it's not a thing. Okay, and most of these ones, if, you're, if you've educated your patient well, they'll get on top of it within three to five days. So I rarely have to taper for mm-hmm. asthma or COPD flare-up. The other point was using antibiotics. So as a general rule of thumb for asthma, you rarely have to use antibiotics even for bad asthma acute exacerbation. So you rarely use antibiotics for asthma. Literally, pretty much the only time I use antibiotics for asthma is if they're, if it's in like a met call situation mm-hmm. and they're clearly having an asthma attack and they're febrile. Because it's more inflammatory I'll, rather than infective. Exactly right. In that situation, they might die if I get it wrong. So I'll just give them antibiotics and I'll worry about resistance later. The only other one is if I've done a chest x-ray on the dude with acute asthma and he turns out to have pneumonia and that's why his asthma's flaring up. Then yeah, okay, fine. I'll give that guy antibiotics. But by and large, you don't give antibiotics in acute asthma. COPD, it's pretty much the opposite. You pretty much have to assume that they've buggered their local immunity and they're more prone to get um, bacterial infections. And if they've got a acute infective flare-up, there's a reasonable enough chance that it's bacterial versus the harm done if you don't appropriately give antibiotics and they've got to go from 100 to zero quick. So most times when you have an acute infective exacerbation of COPD, give antibiotics. Okay. Amoxicillin or doxycycline? Yeah. So as for our antibiotic uh, conversation earlier in the year, you try to go for the most narrow spectrum possible that would do the job. Augmentin, while it covers, is more broad spectrum. So we try to leave that where we can. Yeah. Amoxicillin is still broad spectrum, but, you know, again, like they've got a pet immunity, so they'll grow funny things. So amoxicillin is first line. If... They are super unwell and you kind of don't want to roll the dice. That's reasonable to give Augmentin off the bat. Or if they're not getting better with their Amoxil, then you can change them to Augmentin. So yes, you probably would have read that, but it tends not to be a first line. The first line as per ETG is Amoxil or Doxy. So that's the key point in asthma. You pretty well never give antibiotics. In an infective flare-up of COPD, you pretty much always give antibiotics and you instruct the patient to do so as well. And so when are you giving PRED in COPD? Same rule. More than every three hours with your Ventolin, give PRED as well. And is that the same criteria for the antibiotics? Antibiotics is pretty much if they have like early symptoms symptoms and a flare-up, give them antibiotics. An exception to the rule with PRED with COPD, but watch this space because it's a rapidly disputable area, is in COPD, if they're febrile with an infective flare-up, a lot of guidelines say do a chest x-ray before you start PRED. Yeah. Because if it's a pneumonia, the chance of you making the pneumonia uncontrollably worse with the PRED is arguably worse than you giving PRED if they don't have a pneumonia. In actual practice, if I was in ED seeing somebody with an acute flare-up of COPD and they were yeah. febrile, 
I'd do a chest x-ray first because I can. I can literally do it within the hour and then start the prep. Because if you think about how long prep takes to work, it doesn't matter whether I give it now or in three hours from now because it's going to take like five hours to work anyway. Yeah. But if I was in GP land and, you know, it's in Kapanda where I don't have an x-ray machine, I have to go there and physically do it myself, you know, I might just give them the prep anyway. Yeah. In terms of whether they need to be admitted, is it mainly based on saturations? Or Good question. So, in an essence, yes, because a lot of it is common sense. In real <laughs> life, you can kind of spot the guy that you're like, uh, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna need admission because you know, like, we're just keeping you from breathing now and easy. And if you go home, you know, it could get worse anytime in the next couple of hours, and you need like. BiPAP anyway, so you're gonna have to come straight back here. So, a lot of it is common sense just by looking at them. And yes, if you look at them and you're like, oh yeah, you look sick, probably their stats will reflect that, or probably their temperature or rest rate will reflect that. I like the rule of S's. Are they saturating well? Yeah. Are they safe to go home with their environment? How, <coughs> how sick do they appear? Yeah. Or do you have any <coughs> suspicion of something else going on? Yeah. What's your like indication to give them a yes. Good question. If nothing else is working, you'll, you'll find out pretty quickly because if you stick a non-rebreather on somebody with max flow oxygen, they still look like they're struggling. Like your gut, your knee-jerk reaction will be to yell out what, to get the bypass. What else can you do? So that in terms of admission criteria, it's pretty obvious. Most protocols will have, most hospitals will have a protocol of this is when you admit somebody for COPD or asthma and they'll have specific numbers of SATs beyond this, blah, blah, blah. But I find in actual practice, I've never been shot down for saying like, okay, high rest team, this guy needs to be admitted for COPD of asthma because it's pretty freaking obvious at that point. Yeah. And they know that too. And they know that both these conditions, unfortunately, you can be doing pretty well until you don't, even if you're doing everything right. So they have a pretty low threshold for meeting these dudes as well. Yeah. Yeah. For OSCE point of view, they will make it pretty obvious. I don't even think they do this in the OSCE, but it's along the lines of like, I'm sorry, I can't answer any more of your history questions because I'm like, I'm like really struggling to talk. And they'll be saying that in phrases, not sentences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Love cool. All right. So I think that COPD nutted out. So tick, tick. You've been listening to GP Life Hacks with Dr. David Lamb. Music by Nathan Huiyi. Stop it and say she still is mine.